Hello and welcome to Reading with Carrie, a mindfulness podcast series that can be used as a sleep aid or to ease your anxiety and relieve your stress. I am your host, Carrie Fable, and I am so thankful that you've decided to spend some time with me. So this one is going to be a double hitter. You see, in my attempt to read all the most popular stories' origins, I came to find that Disney's Brave, which is a coming-of-age story focusing on Merida, really is an original tale based on Celtic mythology. So there are several motifs thrown in, but the tale itself is unique, which is really just lovely, but for my purposes, makes things a little difficult. However, one of the tales that was so prominent in Mark Andrews' mind, the director for Brave, was the Arthurian legends. And since Merlin is a legendary wizard and we're in the spooky month of October full of witchcraft and such, I thought it might be fun to read the first chapter in the legends of King Arthur. This is pulled from Gutenberg.org, link in the description, who so generously allows others to share the story. But first, as always, let's start with a mindfulness exercise. Here is a simple, basic mindfulness breathing exercise. In a comfortable sitting position, with eyes open or closed, arms wherever they are comfortable, legs in a relaxed position, take note of your body, the shape that it's in, the weight of each limb resting together. Breathe in deeply on a slow count of four. Hold the breath for just a moment and focus on the sensation in your chest. Breathe out on a slow count of four. And listen to your body. Feel the sensations, the touch of each part, the connection of you with the item you are sitting on, a chair, the bed, the carpet. Feel yourself relax. Soften your breath in a slow, steady rhythm. Don't alter your breath. Just feel the natural flow of your breath. Feel how your body naturally goes through the motion. Where do you feel the breath in your body? Can you feel it enter through your nostrils, in your throat, down in your lungs, or deeper in your stomach? Feel the sensations of your breath, and don't try to anticipate the next movement. It's alright if your mind wanders, just gently refocus back to your breathing. Stay in the moment for a few more breaths. Feel your body in the surroundings. Where do your arms rest? What are your fingertips feeling? Where is your tongue settled in your mouth? Go through each part of the body. Now, what do you hear? How many sounds can you decipher in the room? 
Does your breathing make a noise? Is your stomach gurgling? Take another deep breath in on a slow count of four. And as you release this breath, feel your relaxed mind slowly come back to this podcast. Don't rush. Sit in this moment a while. Indulge your sensations in the bliss. Let out a peaceful, audible sigh. You've earned it. And now here's the story. The Prophecies of Merlin and the Birth of Arthur King Vortigern, the usurper, sat upon his throne in London, when suddenly, upon a certain day, ran in a breathless messenger and cried aloud, Arise, Lord King, for the enemy is come, even Ambrosius and Uther, upon whose throne thou sittest, and full twenty thousand with them. And they have sworn by a great oath, Lord, to slay thee, ere this year be done. And even now they march towards thee, as the north wind of winter, for bitterness and haste. At those words, Vortigern's face grew white as ashes, and, rising in confusion and disorder, he sent for all the best artificers and craftsmen and mechanics, and commanded them vehemently to go and build him, straightway, in the furthest west of his lands, a great and strong castle, where he might fly for refuge and escape the vengeance of his master's sons. And moreover, cried he, let the work be done within a hundred days' time from now, or I will surely spare no life amongst you all. Then all the host of craftsmen, fearing for their lives, found out a proper site whereon to build the tower, and eagerly began to lay in the foundations. But no sooner were the walls raised up above the ground than all their work was overwhelmed and broken down by night invisibly. No man perceived how, or by whom, or what. And the same thing happening again, and yet again. All the workmen, full of terror, sought out the king, and threw themselves upon their faces before him, beseeching him to interfere, and help them, or to deliver them from their dreadful work. Filled with mixed rage and fear, the king called for the astrologers and wizards, and took counsel with them what these things might be, and how to overcome them. The wizards worked their spells and incantations, and in the end declared that nothing but the blood of a youth born without mortal father, smeared on the foundations of the castle, could avail to make it stand. Messengers were therefore sent forthwith through all the land to find, if it were possible, such a child. And as some of them went down a certain village street, they saw a band of lads fighting and quarreling, and heard them shout at one, Avant, thou imp! Avant, son of no mortal man! Go find thy father, and leave us in peace! At that the messengers looked steadfastly on the lad, and asked who he was. One said his name was Merlin, another that his birth and parentage were known by no man, a third that the foul fiend alone was his father. Hearing the things, the officers seized Merlin and carried him before the king by force. But no sooner was he brought to him than he asked in a loud voice, for what cause he was thus dragged there. My magicians, answered Vortigern, told me to seek out a man that had no human father, and to sprinkle my castle with his blood, that it may stand. Order those magicians, said Merlin, to come before me, and I will convict them of a lie. The king was astonished at his words but commanded the magicians to come and sit down before Merlin, who cried to them, 
Because ye know not what is that hinders the foundations of the castle, ye have advised my blood for a cement to it, as if that would avail. But tell me now, rather, what there is below that ground, for something there is surely underneath that will not suffer the tower to stand. The wizards at these words began to fear and made no answer. Then said Merlin to the king, I pray, lord, that workmen may be ordered to dig deep down into the ground till they shall come to a great pool of water. This then was done and the pool discovered far beneath the surface of the ground. Then, turning again to the magicians, Merlin said, Tell me now, false psychophants, what there is underneath that pool. But they were silent. Then said he to the king, Command this pool to be drained, and at the bottom shall be found two dragons, great and huge, which are now sleeping, but which at night awake and fight and tear each other. At their great struggle all the ground shakes and trembles, and so casts down thy towers, which, therefore, never yet could find secure foundations. The king was amazed at these words, but commanded the pool to be forthwith drained, and surely at the bottom of it did they presently discover the two dragons, fast asleep, as Merlin had declared. But Vortigern sat upon the brink of the pool, till night, to see what else would happen. Then those two dragons, one of which was white, the other red, rose up and came near one another, and began a sore fight, and cast forth fire with their breath. But the white dragon had the advantage, and chased the other to the end of the lake. And he, for grief at his fight, turned back upon his foe, and renewed the combat, and forced him to retire in turn. But in the end the red dragon was worst, and the white dragon disappeared, no man knew where. When the battle was done, the king desired Merlin to tell him what it meant. Whereat he, bursting into tears, cried out this prophecy, which first foretold the coming of King Arthur. Woe to the red dragon, which figureth the British nation, for his banishment cometh quickly. His lurking holes shall be seized by the white dragon, the Saxon, whom thou, O king, hast called to the land. The mountains shall be leveled as the valleys, and the rivers of the valleys shall run blood. Cities shall be burned, and churches laid in ruins, till at length the opposed shall turn for a season, and prevail against the strangers. For the boar of Cornwall shall arise and rend them, and trample their necks beneath his feet. The island shall be subject to his power, and he shall take the forests of Gaul. The house of Romulus shall dread him, all the world shall fear him, and his end shall no man know. He shall be immortal in the mouths of the people." and his works shall be food to those that tell them. But as for thee, O Vortigen, flee thou the sons of Constantine, for they shall burn thee in thy tower. For thine own ruin wast thou traitor to their father, and didst bring the Saxon heathens to the land. Aurelius and Uther are even now upon thee to revenge their father's murder, and the brood of the white dragon shall waste thy country, and shall lick thy blood. Find out some refuge, if thou wilt, but who may escape the doom of God? The king heard all this, trembling greatly, and, convicted of his sins, said nothing in reply. Only he hasted the builders of his tower by day and night, and rested not till he had fled thereto. In the meantime, Aurelius, the rightful king, was hailed with joy by the Britons, who flocked to his standard, and prayed to be led against the Saxons. But he, till he had first killed Vortigern, would begin no other war. He marched therefore to Cambria, and came before the tower which the usurper had built. Then crying out to all his knights, Avenge ye on him who hath ruined Britain, and slain my father and your king. He rushed with many thousands at the castle walls, but being driven back again and yet again, at length he thought of fire, and ordered blazing brands to be cast into the building from all sides. These finding soon a proper fuel, ceased not to rage, 
till spreading to a mighty conflagration, they burned down the tower and Vortigern within it. Then did Aurelius turn his strength against Hengeist and the Saxons, and, defeating them in many places, weakened their power for a long season, so that the land had peace. Anon the king, making many journeys to and fro, restoring ruined churches, and creating order, came to the monastery near Salisbury, where all those British knights lay buried who had been slain there by the treachery of Heingeist. For when in former times Heingeist had made a solemn truce with Vortigern to meet in peace and settle terms, whereby himself and all his Saxons should depart from Britain, the Saxon soldiers carried every one of them beneath his garment a long dagger, and at a given signal fell upon the Britons and slew them to the number of nearly five hundred. The sight of the place where the dead lay moved Aurelius to great sorrow, and he cast about in his mind how to make a worthy tomb over so many noble martyrs, who had died there for their country. When he had in vain consulted many craftsmen and builders, he sent, by advice of the archbishop, for Merlin, and asked him what to do. "'If you would honour the burying place of these men,' said Merlin, "'with an everlasting monument,' Send for the giant's dance, which is in Kilarus, a mountain in Ireland, for there is a structure of stone there, which none of this age could raise without a perfect knowledge of the arts. They are stones of a vast size and wondrous nature, and if they can be placed here, as they are there, round this spot of ground, they will stand forever. At these words of Merlin, Aurelius burst into laughter and said, How is it possible to remove such vast stones from so great a distance, as if Britain also had no stones fit for the work? I pray the king, said Merlin, to forbear vain laughter. What I have said is true, for those stones are mystical and have healing virtues. The giants of old brought them from the furthest coast of Africa and placed them in Ireland while they lived in that country and their design was to make baths in them, for use in time of grievous illness. For if they washed the stones and put the sick into the water, it certainly healed them, as also it did them that were wounded in battle, and there is no stone among them but hath the same virtue still. When the Britons heard this, they resolved to send for the stones and to make war upon the people of Ireland if they offered to withhold them. So, when they had chosen Uther, the king's brother, for their chief, they set sail to the number of fifteen thousand men, and came to Ireland. There, Gilomanius, the king, withstood them fiercely, and not till after a great battle could they approach the giant's dance, the sight of which filled them with joy and admiration. But when they sought to move the stones, the strength of all the army was in vain, until Merlin, laughing at their failures, contrived machines of wondrous cunning, which took them down with ease and placed them in the ships. When they had brought the whole to Salisbury, Aurelius, with the crown upon his head, kept for four days the Feast of Pentecost with royal pomp. And in the midst of all the clergy and the people, Merlin raised up the stones and set around the sepulchre of the knights and barons as they stood in the mountains of Ireland. Then was the monument called Stonehenge, which stands, as all men know, upon the plain of Salisbury to this very day. Soon thereafter it befell that Aurelius was slain by poison in Winchester and was himself buried within the giant's dance. At the same time came forth a comet of amazing size and brightness, darting out a beam, at the end whereof was a cloud of fire shaped like a dragon, from whose mouth went out two rays, one stretching over Gaul, the other ending in seven lesser rays over the Irish Sea. At the appearance of this star a great dread fell upon the people, and Uther, marching into Cambria against the son of Vortigern, himself was very troubled to learn what it might mean. 
Then Merlin, being called before him, cried in a loud voice, O mighty loss, O stricken Britain, alas, the great prince is gone from us, Aurelius Ambrosius is dead, whose death will be ours also, unless God help us. Haste, therefore, noble Uther, to destroy the enemy, the victory shall be thine, and thou shalt be king of all Britain. For the star with the fiery dragon signifies thyself, and the ray over Gaul portends that thou shalt have a son, most mighty, whom all those kingdoms shall obey, which the ray covers. Thus, for the second time, did Merlin foretell the coming of King Arthur. And Uther, when he was made king, remembered Merlin's words, and caused two dragons to be made in gold, in likeness of the dragon he had seen in the star. One of these he gave to Winchester Cathedral, and had the other carried into all his wars before him, whence he was ever after called Uther Pendragon, or the dragon's head. Now when Uther Pendragon had passed through all the land, and settled it, and even voyaged into all the countries of the Scots, and tamed the fierceness of that rebel people, he came to London, and ministered justice there. And it befell at a certain great banquet, and high feast, which the king made at Easter tide. There came, with many other earls and barons, Golos, Duke of Cornwall, and his wife, Igerna, who was the most famous beauty in all Britain. And soon after, Gorlois became slain in battle. Uther determined to make Igerna his own wife, but in order to do this, and enable him to come to her, for she was shut up in the high castle of Tintagil, on the furthest coast of Cornwall, the king sent for Merlin, to take counsel with him, and to pray his help. This, therefore, Merlin promised him on one condition, namely that the king should give him up the firstborn of his marriage. For Merlin, by his arts, foreknew that this firstborn should be the long-wished prince, King Arthur. When Uther, therefore, was at length happily wedded, Merlin came to the castle on a certain day, and said, Sir, thou must now provide thee for the nourishing of thy child. And the king, nothing doubting, said, Be it as shall wilt. I know a lord of thine in this land, said Merlin, who is a man both true and faithful. Let him have the nourishing of the child. His name is Sir Ector, and he hath fair positions both in England and in Wales. When, therefore, the child is born, let him be delivered unto me, unchristianed, at Wonder Poston Gate, and I will bestow him in the care of his good knight. So when the child was born, the king bid two knights and two ladies to take it, bound in rich cloth of gold, and deliver it to a poor man, whom they should discover at a postern gate. And the child being delivered thus to Merlin, who himself took the guise of a poor man, was carried by him to a holy priest, and christened by the name of Arthur, and then was taken to Sir Ector's house, and nursed at Sir Ector's wife's own breasts, and in the same house he remained privily for many years, no man soever knowing where he was, save Merlin and the king. Anon it befell that the king was seized by a lingering distemper, and the Saxon heathens, taking their occasion, came back from oversea, and swarmed upon the land, wasting it with fire and sword. When Uther heard thereof, he fell into a greater rage than his weakness could bear, and commanded all his nobles to come before him, that he might unbraid them for their cowardice. And when he had sharply and hotly rebuked them, he swore that he himself, nigh unto death although he lay, would lead them forth against the enemy, then causing a horse litter to be made, in which he might be carried, for he was too faint and weak to ride, he went up with all his army, swiftly against the Saxons. But they, when they heard that Uther was coming in a litter, disdained to fight with him, saying it would be a shame for brave men to fight with one half dead. So they retired into their city, and as it were in scorn of danger, left the gates wide open. But Uther straightway commanding his men to assault the town, 
They did so without loss of time, and had already reached the gates, when the Saxons, repenting too late of their haughty pride, rushed forth to the defense. The battle raged till night, and was begun again next day, but at last their leaders, Octa and Eosa, being slain, the Saxons turned their backs and fled, leaving the Britons a full triumph. The king at this felt so great joy that, whereas before he could scarce raise himself without help, he now sat upright in his litter by himself, and said with a laughing and merry face, They called me the half-dead king, and so indeed I was. But victory to me, half-dead, is better than defeat and the best health. For to die with honor is far better than to live disgraced. But the Saxons, although thus defeated, were ready still for war. Uther would have pursued them, but his illness had by now so grown that his knights and barons kept him from the adventure. Whereat the enemy took courage, and left nothing undone to destroy the land, until, descending to the vilest treachery, they resolved to kill the king by poison. To this end, as he lay sick in Verulam, they sent and poisoned stealthily a spring of clear water, whence he was wont to drink daily. And so, on the very next day, he was taken with the pains of death, as were also a hundred others after him, before the villainy was discovered, and heaps of earth thrown over the well. The knights and barons, full of sorrow, now took counsel together, and came to Merlin for his help, to learn the king's will before he died for he was by this time speechless. Sirs, there is no remedy, said Merlin, and God's will must be done. But be ye all mid-morrow before him, for God will make him speak before he die. So on the morrow all the barons with Merlin stood round the bedside of the king, and Merlin said aloud to Uther, Lord, shall thy son Arthur be the king of all this realm after thy days? Then Uther Pendragon turned him about, and said, in the hearing of them all, God's blessing and mine be upon him. I bid him pray for my soul, and also that he claim my crown, or forfeit all my blessing. And with those words he died. Then came together all the bishops and the clergy, and great multitudes of people, and bewailed the king, and carrying his body to the convent of Umbrius, they buried it close by his brother's grave, within the giant's dance. So, while this tale is not specifically the sword and the stone story that we know, since here we focused more on Merlin and the prophecy, I did want to hit on the key point of the moral, that virtues such as honesty and genuine kindness, piety and humility, create the strongest traits of one's character. As the thought goes, knowledge and wisdom is the real power. I think, therefore, we should be reminded to always look for lessons and continue to learn and grow. You may have a master's degree or are 20 years deep in a stable career, but there are still skills and topics you could benefit from discovering. Once again, I am not sponsored in any way, but I do highly recommend the online websites such as Udemy, Linda, and Skillshare. I myself prefer Udemy, but it completely depends on the type of course you want to take. However, there are often sales where a $200 class is sold for $10. Once purchased, it never expires, and you can take as long as you want to go through it. I encourage you to walk through your daily life and find areas that have room for improvement. Perhaps you aren't up with the latest technology and want to take an introduction to LinkedIn. Or maybe you've always wanted to learn how to play an instrument but never had the opportunity. Now is the time. While the internet can certainly be a dark and dangerous place for one's mental health, it is also a labyrinth of wonderful and beautiful gems of knowledge. So, go explore. Thank you for listening. I welcome you back anytime you may need to hear a comforting voice or a familiar bedtime story. 